Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. I'm Petra Alderman, and I am an associate researcher at the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies at the University of Copenhagen and a postdoctoral research fellow at the International Development Department at the University of Birmingham. I'm joined today by Eduardo Siani, Assistant Professor of Southeast Asian Studies at Kafoskari University of Venice. Eduardo's research concerns the relationship between Buddhist cosmology and politics in Thailand, focusing on divination, kingship and spirit mediumship. Welcome to the Nordic Asia podcast, Eduardo. It's a great pleasure to have you here. Yes, hi Petra, lovely to be here. Thank you. What I would like to focus on today is your recent research on divination, which is an absolutely fascinating topic. So could you tell me a little bit more? How did you actually become interested in studying this topic and what role does divination play in Thai politics? Right. So when I when I came to Thailand, it was 2002 when I first moved to Thailand. I was I was very young, just out of high school. I came to Thailand to uh, work in the language industry. I was teaching languages, offering uh, interpretation-related services. And without really realizing it, I ended up sub-renting a room at the Spirit Mediums. That was when I really got to learn about, let's say, popular religiosity, or however one wishes to call it in Thailand, and the importance it plays in Thai society. I became very fascinated by that, and I spent altogether three years uh, staying in the house then after three years, the political crisis erupted. I was uh, engaged you know, emotionally in, in what was going on, especially in the uh, social polarization, red shirts, yellow shirts, and I became very interested in politics. So that is when I began uh, reading a lot of academic literature on, on the crisis and on Thai politics. So a few years later, when I had a chance to further my studies in anthropology with a PhD, at, uh, PhD program at SOAS, I thought of putting together these two interests of mine. So in particular, I, I, I really asked myself, people like uh, members of the Red Shirt Movement who are asking for uh, uh, greater egalitarianism in society, are asking for democracy, are asking for their uh, political voice to carry a weight in society. Do they problematize, for example, those ideas of karma that we know tend to shape and to legitimize social stratification in Thailand. Do they, for example, problematize the idea that if you have wealth, if you have the riches, which are understood as signs of good karma, then your voice is supposed to be uh, given a greater weight in politics. Those are the questions I had in mind. And, um, you know, going through the literature, I saw that some scholars were actually touching on them, but I felt like there was not one study that really focused on this. So this was the idea. Now, as an anthropologist, as you know, I needed to do fieldwork. So I needed to identify a social group, you know, a group of people with whom I would have spent a couple of years studying this stuff. And I really thought hard about who might be dealing simultaneously with Buddhist cosmology and with politics. And diviners, which is a word I use to designate astrologers and other fortune tellers or seers, uh, came to mind as really individuals who operate at the crossroad between politics and Buddhist cosmology. That was how the project came about. 
That's really interesting. And I like how you basically set out and said, you know, we know that, especially when we think about karma, that could be used to justify a fairly conservative way of how the Thai society functions and is structured also politically as well. It is often used as a justification for a very strict social hierarchy and rigid system where it is very difficult for certain people to be in positions of of power. And what you mentioned there was quite interesting in relation to the Red Shirt movement and whether it was using it in in different ways. And here I'm I'm trying to understand if you have these these people like astrologers and if you have these fortune tellers, whether they actually stand because Thai politics is so polarized when there was, you know, the time of the red and yellow shirts. Did you have a specific red astrologers and red fortune tellers and specific yellow ones? Or, you know, did they serve both communities alike or how did it work, actually? That's a very good question. So um, so diviners, as I call them, they're individuals of all age groups, even if they tend to be middle age or older people, all sexualities, all genders, all classes, all levels of education and all political colors. So you find uh, very conservative diviners and you find red shirt or even more progressive diviners. So uh, politically, you really find them everywhere in politics across the political spectrum. Now, what I find very interesting is that many of the diviners I worked with actually do serve clients of both sides. So I even know of uh, famous masters who, for example, were serving you know, during, during the years of the crisis before the coup of 2006, simultaneously Taksin and some among his rivals, political and military rivals. This is really, really fascinating. And what this shows to me is that divination is a common language of power that mm. is understood by members of you know, both camps, conservatives and progressives alike, which doesn't mean, of course, that diviners do not have their preferences and they they do not exercise them in, in other contexts. For example, some diviners in Thailand, they write a political forecast for newspapers mm-hmm. or they make political forecasts on television. And there, especially if you know how to read the language, you can tell where certain forecasts, certain commentaries come from. While on the outside, they appear to be quite objective and quite detached. You can really feel, if you know the language of divination, that they are making a critique toward certain leaders or, you know, they're trying to scare them. And then this is quite, quite fascinating. Um, let me just pick on this a little bit more, because I know that as part of your research work, you also actually decided to study this. I mean, mm. shall we call it practice or is it more of an art? I'm not quite sure what to call it. Some diviners themselves, they call it a science. And I'm okay. not sure if I do. <laughs> Definitely it is an art. Because what I notice working with diviners is that good diviners know how to make sense of signs and planets. So there is a degree of creative interpretation. And they know how to speak to customers. They know how to convince customers. They know when to make a forecast that is very specific. For example, oh, you have two children, don't you? One is a female, one is a male. Mm -hmm. And they know how to be more vague when they're not sure about certain things. So definitely there is an artistic element that is at play. You studied this art. Um, I mean, how long did did you study it for? And if you can tell me a little bit more about how this experience actually influenced your way of relating and understanding this in the context of Thai politics. 
so the study of divination for me was really a function of fieldwork. So as I set out to begin this project in Bangkok, I was based in Bangkok, I initially needed to find some diviners who were willing to allow me to be part of their lives for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't easy at all. So the first thing I did was I went to friends who I knew consulted with diviners frequently and I asked them if they could introduce me to a master that they knew maybe the favorite masters some did but the master said you know divination is a private matter I cannot really have you hang around in my in my home in my home office as I tell people's fortunes so I really didn't know where to go I eventually found a public space a night divination market where mm. about 40 masters every night tell fortunes to individuals. Actually, a lot, a lot of their clients were young people. And I just began hanging around in this market. Eventually, I befriended with, uh, with some masters who allowed me to sit down next to them uh, between one client and the next, at times during the actual sessions. And this is how I began uh, field work. After about, I think, a couple of months, if I remember correctly, one practitioner I grew quite close to said, I know you're interested in politics. And he said, frankly, politicians don't come to see us on the side of the road. Mm. And this guy said, you should approach more uh, upscale diviners. And I said, well, sure, but where am I going to find them? And he said, I'll introduce you to my teacher. My teacher, he said, he lectures at a prestigious astrological association in Bangkok, and he's been consulted all the time by politicians, by military men. So he took me to this astrological association. I met the man, and the first thing this man did was he asked me to show him the palm of my hand. He read it, like I actually just glanced it, and he said, what do you want from me? I said, I'd like to interview you about politics. He said, I won't give you an interview. And I can predict now that you will fail miserably with your research project. He said, because you will never know what divination is about unless you actually practice it. He mm-hmm. said, you'll never understand the way we think unless you try and sit down you know, on this side of the table. So uh, he said, while I won't allow you to interview me, I, I will take you as one of my students. So I accepted. I said, yes. And I began studying it. And I studied it for, I think it was four months. I studied mm-hmm. like one kind of Thai astrology. I think it was for four, four months. And then I began telling fortunes to people I didn't know, which was part of the training. The study of astrology was really a function of field work. It was a way to negotiate access to the field. Mm-hmm. to get into this astrological association where I got to know this teacher and other colleagues who are more famous uh, diviners. And eventually what I realized that it did, it actually gave me the basic grammar of astrology, which I understand now it was really, really valuable, if not necessary, to really be able to have conversations with diviners, fully understand what it is that they're talking about. Because when they talk about politics, at times they speak about planets. So if you do not know, for example, that the sun is the king, Mars is the military, you cannot even understand who the main protagonists of the narratives are. It turned out to be really, really important. This sounds utterly fascinating. And I can see how actually studying the, the, the practice or the art, as we, as we talked about before, was really beneficial to your research. And what I find very interesting, and this is perhaps something that you can help shine a bit more light on, is the difference between 
what you said about the diviners and who these people are and the sheer variety of genders and, you know, socioeconomic backgrounds these people can come from. And perhaps the more formal religion when it comes to Buddhism, that's a lot more exclusive in many ways, right? Only men are recognized as Buddhist monks, female are not um, recognized. I mean, obviously there's the Meiji order, but that's not actually at the same level as the men. So why is it more inclusive? And is there a social hierarchy between the diviners that maybe isn't openly out there, but through your interactions with them, you could see that maybe certain people had more credit or had different types of customers. Would it be the high-end ones that you were talking about would come from the more, let's say, privileged backgrounds and the, the sort of the more ordinary ones who would sit on the side of the streets would come from the, let's say, poorer socioeconomic background. Yeah, I think it's a really, really good question. When we think of diviners, initially, I think that the stereotype, the image that comes to mind is the spectacled old astrologer who hides behind a politician, you know, the male astrologer. And that was really the case, I think, in the 70s, in the 80s, and in the 90s. Now, divination is much more fluid, is much more inclusive, it's much more open, as I said, to uh, individuals of all sexualities, genders, and classes. If I think of more uh, elite contexts, such as the astrological associations, uh, which I mentioned earlier, which are really the places where upscale divination is being preserved, is being taught, and sometimes is being offered to um, important people. Diviners there can be both male and female. They tend to have higher degrees of education, but it's not a discriminant. All presidents of these associations have been male so far. So definitely there is, there is still an element of patriarchy. But at the same time, some among the most famous diviners of these associations, and I'm thinking outside these associations, now are women. For example, I can think of some diviners I know who are extraordinarily popular, also among politicians who are women. I'm thinking about possibly the most well-known diviner of the past decade, who was an ET, maybe you've heard this name before, the Burmese diviner who was a woman. Mm -hmm. So it definitely is much more open and fluid now than it was in the past. Diviners now, they say that they know what they know, that is, things unknown about the present, the past, and the future, by means of merging a learned technique, be it astrology, cartomancy, palmistry, with intuitions that they attribute to embodied spirits or embodied gods. Mm -hmm. So they really walk a fine line between almost technocracy, you know, being schooled, and spirit mediumship. Mm -hmm. And this may be a recent uh, development of the divination scene in Thailand. Like, it's not something I've read about what, what concerned, for example, the 90s. Mm -hmm. Like, in the 90s, it seemed that diviners only used uh, learned techniques. So perhaps their uh, shift toward mediumship may explain why they're now more inclusive in terms of gender. Mediumship in Thailand, as you know, is very inclusive, and uh, there are actually a strong tradition of female mediums in Thailand. So I suppose I hypothesize that this could be a reason why now uh, women and also individuals of non-normative genders and sexualities figure so prominently in divination. It's also fascinating, and I always have in mind, I remember my first time when I got to Thailand in 2012 
background, you know, seeing these people on the sidewalks with like plastic chair and a, and a small yes. table. Yes, a foldable metal table. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the cues, the people there, sometimes they're in office clothes, sometimes in pajamas. Mm. You know, this really gives you an idea of how embedded this is in society. You know, people just walk out of their homes and sit down in a queue, in a line, waiting for their fortunes to be told. Indeed. And it's a, it's such a stark contrast with oftentimes how, let's say, Buddhism, which is the dominant religion in Thailand, is being portrayed as this rational force. But then actually, when you come to these countries like Thailand, you see that there is a lot of merging. You know, it's never pure religious practice. Even Buddhism itself has a lot of practices or elements to it that are uh, very much based around spirits and sort of divination as well. And then you have this whole other industry of, as you say, astrologers, fortune readers and diviners. And it's such an interesting mix. And people do actually operate in all these settings. And you can see somebody, you know, giving alms to the monk in the morning and then running off having their, their palms read. So it's just such a fluid and interesting practice to really understand. Yes, although what I should say is that I think that one reason why diviners are so popular in Thailand is that they managed really well to marry divination with Buddhism. Mm -hmm. So when you sit down, for example, with an astrologer, well, the astrologer will actually use a technique, a discipline astrology that comes from uh, the Hindu world, mm -hmm. actually comes from India, the, the tradition of Thai astrology. But actually, as, as they make forecasts, they really rely on basic cosmological principles uh, of Thai Buddhism, such as, for example, the, the very law of karma. When they speak about positive outcomes that they see for the future or negative outcomes, they will look for a cause in moral action. They continuously connect whatever they see via certain practice to the most standard, the most basic rules of Buddhist cosmology. So in this respect, they actually seem quite orthodox. Mm -hmm. So this kind of brings me back to something that you started talking about at the beginning of the podcast a little bit. And it's this idea, you know, is actually divination an inherently conservative political practice? Because it can be tied to these very conservative ways of perceiving what karma is, how it determines the sociopolitical hierarchies in Thailand and, and actually how it works. Is it inherently conservative or could it also be used more progressively? I mean, you mentioned being interested in how the wretched were using it but we know that obviously more recently we've had these major student-led protests in Thailand uh, in 2020 2021 so you know how does that all come together so I think that divination per se as in the divinatory the oracular techniques can be quite conservative mm -hmm. I'll give you an example I mentioned that uh, the sun is associated to kingship. Yeah. Yeah. The sun is associated to kingship. The sun is associated to leadership. More generally, the sun is associated to the masculine element. So what does this tell you? This tells you that a good leader is one and man. Mm. Very conservative. Yeah. At the same time, the practice of divination is something else. So if you were, for example, a female politician, going to see an astrologer asking if you can become prime minister. Mm -hmm. Now, this astrologer might look at where the sun is in your chart. Right. So this astrologer will appropriate the sun and he will use it as a means 
to detect your own abilities to become prime minister, to become sovereign, to, be, to, to become a leader. And he might also suggest ritual strategies to enhance your son, to enhance your leadership. Mm-hmm. So you see what I'm saying? While originally the son is associated to male leadership, in practice, a divine may actually choose to associate it to the leadership of a female client. Mm-hmm. So in practice, there's actually an element of agency of creativity that can be even quite progressive. Even karma, let's, let's talk about karma, which we mentioned again and again. During the um, youth-led protests of 2020 and 2021 especially, I knew of some diviners who were sympathetic toward the movement who were putting on political forecasts on their Facebook pages. And what they did was they identified days that were not dangerous for the young protesters versus days that were dangerous to them on the basis of the ups and downs in the levels of good karma of the enemies of the, uh, of the protesters. For example, Prayut, etc., etc. So you see what I'm saying? The same idea of karma, which remains in divination, which remains in this cosmology, can be used actually to think of a counter strategy, of a tactic to to counter established power. If I was to put it in very simple terms, and do correct me, please, if I'm wrong here, but would it be like, okay, so this diviner would look and see this is an auspicious day for Prime Minister Prayut, so he would say to the, the student leadership, for example, you know, this is not a very good day for you to protest because it's a good day for the Prime Minister. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct, yes. So good planets on a certain day would mean good karma. Mm-hmm. A planetary movement that is dangerous to a leader would mean that on, on that particular day, the karma levels, or even the barami levels of that, lead, of that leader are particularly low. So that would make it a safer day for the protests, mm-hmm. a more auspicious day for the protests. It's utterly fascinating. And I can see what you mean that although perhaps, as you said, it can be inherently conservative, it can also be used yeah. in other ways. Yeah. Were there any other examples that you found when you were studying these protests of how divination could have been used by these student protesters, maybe in ways to try and combat some of that conservative way of of using karma and way of using barami and way of using these concepts in Thailand, which inherently, as we mentioned a few times already, are the concepts that do prop up the the current highly hierarchical royalist military political order in Thailand. So what I think that is very, very interesting about the history of divination in Thailand is that, if you like, divination democratized with the end of absolutism. Mm-hmm. So before 1932, astrology was a technique, a discipline that was developed inside the court for presumably enhancing the sovereign power of kings. Mm-hmm. So the king was surrounded by these uh, Brahmin astrologers and their, uh, their practice was supposed to be secret to people outside. So it was supposed to be a very exclusive divinatory tradition. Now, what happens in 1932? In 1932, the People's Party comes in, they bring an end to to absolutism, and they shut down a dedicated department of astrology within the state. At that moment, the royal astrologers, they left the court and they opened offices in town. And they began using that technique that was developed for kings 
for actually enhancing the power of commoners. So they began with the most powerful at the time, military men, then politicians, and now virtually anybody has access to that, you know, to this secret technology of power of kingship. So this is what I really find fascinating. So is it conservative, you know, to go back to the question, is it conservative? Yes, it is. But at the same time, this technology has democratized, has now reached anybody. So anybody can be made into a little king, if you like, mm. with the help of a diviner. And some students have a keen interest in divination, and some were actually using it behind the scenes of the protests. The dates of some protests were chosen by, by following, let's say, the court calendar, mm -hmm. and there were some rituals organized by ritual experts within the context of these protests that sought to mimic court ritual in a way that enhanced the power of the people and elevated the people as a collective of equals as the new sovereign. It's, it's truly fascinating. And I think what is very interesting about all this is that as longtime observers of Thai politics obviously saw these protests as rather progressive, which they definitely were. But, you know, being progressive doesn't necessarily mean completely rejecting some of these practices that have been used in the past, maybe by the conservative forces. But what you just said here is that these practices can actually be co-opted and used as a part of that resistance as well. And I think this is really interesting. And it shows how, you know, we have to be, maybe be thinking a little bit more on the level of these practices and how can they be used by different groups and maybe not label them this, oh, you know, this practice or divination is very conservative it's, it's linked to these kind of things but we have to have more of an open mind about these kind of practices yeah i think so i think you know what, what really strikes me studying divination is that people are really really creative mm. and when they identify something including a religious practice as powerful they will find a way to appropriate it to make it theirs and to turn it into something that is useful to them. So just like divination can supposedly enhance the sovereign power of a king, of a military dictator, at the same time, it may be used to, to enhance the sovereign power of one individual or even a collective. This is the idea. Yeah, and it's fascinating because a lot of the stuff that the student-led protests were doing was actually, you know, as you said, appropriating practices like these ones, but also other and throwing them back at the regime. Um, and I think that was the kind of very clever and creative way of doing resistance and showing resistance to, to those in power. And I think it's definitely worthwhile paying closer attention to these things as, as we move on. Unfortunately, we're kind of getting towards the, the end of our time for this podcast episode but I am very pleased that we had the chance to talk about the divination practice in Thailand and that you helped to shed some light on the practice and on how it is understood and, and practiced really in Thailand today so thank you very much for such an amazing account of divination. Thank you Petra it's been really my pleasure and I'm grateful to you for having me here. Thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. I'm Petra Alderman, Associate Researcher at the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies at the University of Copenhagen and a postdoctoral research fellow at the International Development Department at the University of Birmingham. I've been talking today to Eduardo Siani, Assistant Professor of Southeast Asian Studies at Kafoskari University of Venice. Thank you. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.